Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And of course, I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour uh, for making the show financially viable. Our sponsors for this second hour are American Bonanza, Lucky Strike Resources, Helio Resources, Metanor Resources, Merrick's Gold, Inc., Marathon Gold, Meadow Bay Gold, and Paramount Gold and Silver. Well, you just heard Ron Paul talk about the loss of our liberties as we ignored President Eisenhower's warnings about the military-industrial complex, and as we as a nation ignored President Kennedy's warnings about secret societies, most significant of which is the Federal Reserve Bank, and that's a private company that is able to reallocate wealth from the people who produce it. That is, the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, various folks that produce things that are good for other people. Well, the Fed is able to, by the creation of money out of thin air, reallocate that wealth from those people who create it to themselves and also to their bed partners, the government. We have followed Keynesian economics, which has been the intellectual background for the path away from free markets and limited government that the founders of our, uh, our country really envisioned and, and risked their lives for. And as Ron Paul notes in the following speech, half of every transaction that takes place in the, in the United States, and a huge number of transactions, of course, that take place outside of the United States, are in U.S. dollars. But the U.S. dollar is totally manipulated by that secret society, the Federal Reserve Bank, which has its, as its ultimate ma mandate, not the one that they talk about, but the real one, its ultimate mandate is the protection of the member banks that own the Federal Reserve. It would not have been possible for the U.S. to get itself into the horrible financial condition that we are now in, that we've got ourselves into to finance endless wars, corporate fascism, and socialism as if we still, that if we were still on a gold standard. None of that would have been possible. Listen now to the second part of Ron Paul's October 5th speech at the National Press Club, in which he explains the importance of a gold-backed monetary system for the protection of our personal liberties. But uh, we, we need to, uh, of course, look at other policies. I've talked a little bit about the uh, Federal Reserve and the importance of sound money, but the other, a couple other reasons why you need one sound money. If you happen to be opposed to massive expansions of the government, whether it's the entitlement system or the perpetual wars that we're in, uh, you can't be for a gold standard or limitation because that's the way you finance it. That's the way it's been done for thousands of years. Uh, they've known about debasing the currency and diluting the metal and clipping coins today. It isn't just printing money. We just use a computer. But it cannot be financed. These wars would have never started if we had to tax the American people. The founders did their very best to try to put the control of us going to war in the hands of the people through in a, in a Congress, never in the hands of the executive branch and in the hands of the king or the president. And yet today the Congress have graciously given up that prerogative and the people, they don't seem to care and, and <clears throat> they listen to the war propaganda. Listen to the war propaganda going on currently. I mean, we're on the verge of going to war against the Iranians and the Pakistanis. This is from the National Press Club. This week's guest is Republican Texas Congressman Ron Paul, 
who spoke at the club on October 5th, 2011. We have 7,000 drone missiles stationed around the world. And we assume that we can drop those any place we want, any time we want. And guess what? Sometimes innocent people die. And sometimes those innocent people, when they die, have families. And sometimes they get very annoyed by that. But the real irony of this uh, stationing bases with drones uh, around the world, uh, both the CIA as well as the 9-11 Commission acknowledge the fact that a significant uh, event that helped prompt the uh, 9-11 attack was the fact that we had military bases on what was considered holy land in Saudi Arabia. So immediately after 9-11, we took that military base out. And the CIA has talked about blowback for a long time, and the commission acknowledged this. But guess what? We're loading up the Arabian Peninsula with these cruise missiles, these uh, drones and cruise missiles. You think it's going to go unnoticed? No, it's not going to go unnoticed. There are more suicide attacks in one month against American interests and Americans around the world, not in, the co- in our country, around the world in one month than they incurred in the entire period of time prior to 9-11. So we're under direct threat. It's very dangerous. It's going to get worse. And accepting the fact that the president needs more authority to pursue this war that is undeclared against everybody, any place in the world. Oh, well, what the president needs is more authority. He, he can now assassinate people without due process, American citizens. And people cheer it. I mean, what, what is going on with this country? And uh, if, if it would make us perfectly safe and rich and we have to sacrifice our liberties, you know, it would be pretty tough. But it's exactly the opposite is happening. Exactly the opposite. We are less free and we're certainly broke. These wars have cost us $4 trillion. And, uh, and, and that is a major contributing factor to, to our national debt. But this is not new. This is what's happened throughout history. Empires, they get too big, they spread themselves too, uh, too thinly around the world, and they self-destruct, just as the Soviet system did. There is no more chance of us having what people think could be a victory in, in, uh, in Afghanistan and the man the moon. There's no chance whatsoever. All we have is drain, drain our resources. Just the other day up in New Hampshire, we had a significant group of veterans. Many of them came back from Iraq and Afghanistan supporting my candidacy. And uh, it's, it's one, one area where I am very pleased to, to announce also that if you add up all the donations to all the other Republican candidates from military active duty people, I get twice as much because they're sick and tired of these wars and they know they're not working out. One young man that came the other day, he was practically in tears and talking about all his buddies that he lost in Afghanistan. And you know what his concern was now, which is something nobody cares about. It's hardly written about. He's all his buddy, so many of his buddies now are committing suicide because of the long-term consequences. And what about the 40, uh, the 8,500 who died, the 40,000 with severe injuries, hundreds of thousands begging and pleading for help at the Veterans Administration, and we want to go and start more wars? I mean, what did Gates say when he left uh, DOD? He, he said, the Defense Department, he said, anybody who wants to start another war under these conditions needs their head examined. And we need our heads opened up. We need our brains opened up. We need to pay a little attention to what's going on. That's what we really need. And it is going to happen. Economically, it's happening. 
That's what the demonstrations are all about on the streets. And one of these days, the people are going to wake up and connect the excessive spending that we do in these wars overseas and, and our economic de decline here in this country. So I uh, believe very sincerely that we're in a, in, a, in a crisis period of time right now that it's going to be uh, a do-or-die situation. We are at a point where I think uh, we've essentially, hopefully I'm wrong, essentially have crossed the Rubicon. You know, we have crossed that 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 that, uh, that barrier from republic to uh, to dictatorship, to tyranny, to empire. We have our empire. We're in uh, we're, we're in 150 countries. We have 900 bases around the world, and people are are egging for more more war. So we do have the empire. But what, what about the financing? What happens in a, uh, in a dictatorship? They have monopoly control of the creation of money and credit, and they have that through the monetary system that we have. Also, it's the loss of civil liberties, whether it's the loss of civil liberties with our war on drugs or our IRS or the war on terror. Uh, what privacy do we have yet? Today they're talking about the institutionalizing. The government can call up all cell phones because uh, there's a trillion dollars worth of loans out there for the students who aren't ever going to be able to pay them. They can't even get jobs. So what we're going to do is deliver all the telephone numbers to the government so they can bug all these kids that have been abused and say, when are you going to pay your bills? Uh, I mean, we, we've lost our privacy. We, we're, uh, we have an announced program of assassinating American citizens. We're in, uh, we're in perpetual war. And uh, we, we've essentially lost, uh, uh, you know, our, our republic. And, uh, and so this has to be re reversed uh, uh, rather, rather quickly. Without a strict adherence to the rule of law, let me tell you, things go downhill. And I believe that is the case. So my advocacy is for the cause of liberty, the cause for which America stood one time, the cause of sound money and free markets, and, and trying to get people to, to uh, get their courage back again and say, oh, no, if the government doesn't do it, it's going to be destroyed. Yes, the government gave houses to everybody, and they gave free education to everybody. Now they're in a dilemma, and they have to follow up on, uh, on, on the consequences of this. We have lost our understanding. There's a better understanding now of the free market economists and sound money than ever before. The evidence is quite clear about what the founders were talking about, a non-intervention foreign policy. Mind our own business. We can't solve the problems of the world. We can't go into nation building. There's, these fights have been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So we are going to be forced to make changes, and there's no reason that we can't make positive changes. We can get out of this, but we have to change policy. We cannot do it with the same monetary policy, the same economic policy, and the same foreign policy. That is, that is a, 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 just a figment of an imagination if you think you can do this. You can't tinker on the edges. We don't have a budgetary crisis. We have a crisis in our understanding of what the role of government ought to be. The budget is the symptom. The taxes are the symptoms. We have to ask one way or the other. What, what should the role of government be? Is it to take care of us from cradle to grave and police the world and tell us what to do with our personal lives? Or is it to protect our liberties and give us sound money and enforce contracts and protect property rights? There's a big difference. And it is, it is that part that made our country great and prosperous that we are giving up. We are seeing it disappear before our eyes. And young people know it. 
The young people are awakening. They know they need something new and different. And they are coming and they're listening and they're studying about the foreign policy. And they're sick and tired of what they're inheriting. So I would say that uh, there's every reason for me personally to be very optimistic for the changes that have come about here in the last, uh, in the last several years. Well, you've just heard Ron Paul explain why a gold-backed monetary system underwrites economic growth through the efficient use of capital and how it also helps underwrite liberty in an egalitarian society. Well, we have to go to commercial break now, but as soon as we come back, we will listen to Dr. Paul answer questions from the National Press Club relating to what he would do as president to ensure growth. Also, he answers some questions about his chances of winning the Republican nomination. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Ron Paul. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity attention gold stock investors brazil resources inc trading as brizf on the otcqx and as bri on the tsx venture is exploring three gold projects in the garupi gold belt in brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits bri features top brazilian geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in brazil led by recognized mining and financing executive amir adnani co-founder and chairman look us up now at www.brazilresources.com that's brazil resources or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navats Jab Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Lucky Strike Resources Limited conducts due diligence drilling on the claim with a historical resource of 1.5 billion tons of coal in Mongolia. The project is directly north of China, where the coal consumption tripled in the last 10 years to 3.2 billion tons in 2010. Lucky Strike's management team has a proven track record, having contributed significantly in the building of a multi-billion dollar company operating in China. Please visit our website at www.luckystrikeresources.com and get in on this investment opportunity at the ground floor. 
Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. We just finished listening to Ron Paul tell the National Press Club why gold is necessary as a monetary instrument in order to ensure our liberties and prosperity. Over the next half hour, we will now listen to what Dr. Paul would do to restore economic growth and ensure liberty when he is elected president. There are also some questions as to how he expects to gain the Republican nomination that he will answer. Listen now to questions posed to Ron Paul by the National Press Club on October 5th, 2011. Why can't you outline what the spending cuts are today? And if you're going to bring all the soldiers home, we've got 14 million unemployed people in the United States right now. Yes, we'd like for them to be great consumers, but where are they going to find jobs? The, um, you know, the first thing you bring them home, you don't put them out on the street. So they just spend their money here at home. But if you want to look at a good example uh, historically and economically, look at what we did after World War II. I think there were like five or six million people. They just got out of the military, and they came home, and they slashed the military. They didn't stimulate the economy. They slashed the military budget like 60% and cut taxes 30%. 
And that's, we finally went back to work again. So uh, I wouldn't be frightened by that. If you understand the market, you, you don't have to be concerned about it. But as far as indicating the cuts, uh, you know, I can talk in broad categories, and I'll be glad to do that, but I want to design a program where you can even see it on the line item. But ultimately, in the mil- and also in the introduction, this is not a criticism, but, <laughs> but it frequently happens uh, about uh, when we talk about the defense budget. I don't want to cut defense. I want to cut the military. You know, Eisenhower tried to teach us something about the military-industrial complex, building weapons that we don't use and fighting wars we don't have any business being in. So we're not cutting defense there, and I described a little bit about the foreign policy. We have less defense because of that. I mean, our Coast Guard is over in the Persian Gulf. Where do you think our National Guards are, are, are when we want to use them to help rescue operations when natural disasters They're over in Afghanistan. So I would say, yes, you can cut a lot. You can cut hundreds of billions of dollars out of the military budget. You can cut programs that have no constitutional authority. Where, where does the authority come to have a Department of Energy or a Department of Education, Department of Commerce, a department to pass out subsidies to farmers? I mean, will they not exist if we have free markets and sound money? I mean, we have to understand how the markets work. We have to have confidence how the market works and how freedom works. But the cuts can be there, and uh, hopefully in due time, the specifics will be there. You can look at every line item which we're going to cut. But uh, it, it'd be—I mean, you could uh, you could slash the budget probably by seventy percent if you said anything that is not authorized directly by the Constitution no longer can be paid for. I mean, it is this total lack of respect for the Constitution, whether it's going to war or, or reinstitutionalizing prohibition without a constitutional amendment, all these kind of things. We have just gone so far from what was originally intended by the uh, founders of this country. So just to follow up then, when would you have specific ideas about where to cut? When would you have those specifics? A couple of weeks, I, I believe. Um, but um, I'm probably more specific than, than others. You know, if I want to get rid of the Department of Education, Department of Energy, <laughs> Department of Commerce, Department of Agriculture, and cut the military budget in half, that's a pretty good start, and that's pretty specific. So you talk quite a bit in your speech. And you can stay up here uh, if you want. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to get any more questions in. Uh, you talk quite a bit in your speech about the protests now occurring on Wall Street. What do you see as you, your areas of agreement with those people? And as president, what would you do to ameliorate their concerns uh, since they seem to be very upset primarily with, quote, unquote, big business and the banks? Uh, right, and I can't speak for the people out there because I don't know who they are and exactly what they're demonstrating against. I can, I can argue the case for uh, their right to express their outright frustration with what is going on. Some are liberals and some are conservatives and some are libertarians and some are strict constitutionalists. And if you read carefully a lot of what I've written uh, on economic policy over the last 10, 15 years, I talk a lot about this, that eventually we will go bankrupt. Eventually, we will undermine our productivity. We've had no new jobs in the past 10 years, yet we've had 30 million uh, uh, increase in our population. That eventually our jobs would go overseas and the pie would shrink 
And there would be an aggressive attitude to get a piece of the pie that's no longer there. And this is what we're seeing. So you will have a mixture up there. But as far as the federal government involved in, in the practice of civil disobedience in the various states, it's really up to the states to deal with it. I, I think civil disobedience, uh, if everybody knows exactly what they're doing, is a legitimate uh, uh, is a legitimate effort. It's been done in this country uh, for many grievances, and some people end up going to jail for this. But uh, to speak for a special group and say, uh, yeah, I like what they're doing or they're not doing, but uh, what I want to do is try to sort it out and tell people why, why they're struggling and that this was a predictable event, and the solution is really getting a healthy economy back, and you can't get a healthy economy until you deal with the many things I've just got done saying. You've retained, uh, this is a question from the audience, you've retained a solid block of the Republican vote in the polls. What do you need to do to push into the top tier of the Republican field, and what do you plan to do? I personally plan to do exactly what I've been doing for 35 years, and that is uh, talking about the philosophy of liberty, and now it's more appropriate because people need something, and they don't like what they have. I'll continue to do that, but we're going to continue to run a very uh, well-run campaign. Uh, we're raising enough money. We're not competing, uh, of course, with people who can wave a wand and, uh, and get money from the big, uh, big donors, but uh, we're going to continue to do the same. But really, the litmus test is the primaries. We have to prove ourselves in the early primaries, and that's where we're very encouraged. So are you focusing your attention on the early part of the process? Oh, yes. Well, I, I spend uh, more time in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, no doubt. One interesting dynamic of this campaign, which seems a little unique, is, is not only the shift in leadership in the polls through the process so far, in the sense that one person seems to lead one month and then may fall uh, to, the, to uh, the middle part of the pack, to, uh, after that. Uh, the other part is the, the seeming uh, yearning for someone else to jump into the campaign and the headlines of the past 24 hours uh, focusing on Chris Christie. Uh, how do you explain uh, this yearning which some voters seem to be engaged in to see someone else jump in? Uh, does that say anything about the quality of the people who are currently running? No, I think it represents the, uh, the failure of the system, and what is offered up is, uh, you know, the status quo. Uh, the candidates, uh, I think, uh, that I am up against uh, represent a very much of a status quo, Keynesian spending militarism, and, 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 it, and it doesn't answer the questions. It doesn't even ask the right questions. It doesn't ask the right questions about what liberty is all about and what about the Federal Reserve and a change in the foreign policies. Uh, those, those questions aren't being asked, and I think that is the uh, – and they keep looking uh, – they keep looking for others. But uh, quite frankly, I, I have an uphill battle. Uh, for instance, I, I imagine that uh, everybody in this room, I'll bet, knows who won the straw vote in Florida. See, I want to see a hand up if you don't know who won the straw vote in Florida. Everybody knows. Does anybody know who won the straw vote in California? There, one person. It just happens that uh, yours truly won the straw vote in California. And uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a non-event. It was a non-event. So I have an uphill battle, you know, and, uh, and, and it was well, well documented. Matter of fact, the documentation 
of the total ignoring of me coming in tied for first place, essentially, in the Ames straw vote, uh, the, it, we, we at least were able to turn around that the exclusion of, of me being tied for first place became an issue, and I think we did quite well. I don't lay awake at night, uh, lie awake at night worrying about this because that's part of the way the system works, but it also explains why if there is somebody out there offering something different and something American people like, uh, you, you know, we have to compensate for our ability to get the message out. Where I feel good, if I go to the university campus and get 1,500 young people out, they've gotten the message because they don't depend on the conventional uh, method of getting their news, and they use the Internet. They know what's going on, and they are giving me a lot of encouragement. So is that to say that you have a problem with the way the news media is treating your campaign? No, I just accept it because that's the way it's been. <laughs> Every, all politicians have a problem to a degree. Yes, I would say that uh, if you want to see an explanation of it, is, uh, 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 look at Jon Stewart. He demonstrated rather dramatically you know, exactly what was going on. And, uh, but, uh, you know, yes, it, it makes a big difference. So, uh, but I think that if, if we're worth our salt and we can raise the money and we can communicate, uh, I would say, you know, for the most part, I, I really get a pretty fair shake. But sometimes when it's, you know, this whole thing, I, I'm really not the right person to ask is why these things happen because I don't have any idea. I, I think people should be asked uh, why, why some things news and other things aren't. And uh, it's, it's a fact of life. Questioner says uh, you have raised more money than uh, many other uh, Republican presidential candidates. You have legions of small donors and passionate supporters. Why hasn't that translated into a better boost at the polls and last time around into votes in the primaries as well? Well, this is a, it's a different world compared to four years ago, so we can't hardly even talk about it because uh, – uh, the fundraising is easier. The support is uh, uh, much greater. Uh, the organization is much more organized and much more professional. And uh, our polls uh, do not discourage us, uh, both in New Hampshire and in Iowa. And, and that will have to that will be the the litmus test. You have to finally do well in the polls. You have to come, overcome all the obstacles of, uh, of of getting the message out and raising the money and getting the organization. And so. Uh, no, uh, but as far as progress is concerned, I'm uh, pretty satisfied with the way we've made progress. So obviously um, you brought up the issue of fundraising in, in your speech and that you're feeling good about that. The questioner asked, what kind of a boost do you think Governor Perry will get from his announcement that he raised $17 million for the campaign, and uh, would he be regarded as the front runner? Uh, maybe, but uh, if you get uh, $8 million, half as much, uh, and you get it from small individual donors who are fervently engaged in campaigning for you, that's a lot different than uh, getting money that more likely might have come for the other candidates from the special interests. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't get that type of money. I'm, I've been on financial services, uh, you know, for all these years, but, you know, bankers don't come and donate me any money. You know, I wonder why. <laughs> because they know where I stand. So, uh, no, I think it's much different. So uh, all, all donors are not equal. You know, uh, I will take uh, my smaller donations with the enthusiasm of the people who send me the money. 
since you raised the issue of raising money, and, and obviously you're reliant on that in the system in which uh, you toil, how do you feel about the way that the system now works in the sense that money, fundraising is such an important part of it? You have the Supreme Court giving a certain amount of power to corporations that uh, was not given to them in the past. Does that make it more difficult for a candidate like you that uh, doesn't have, uh, isn't working through the system the same way as other candidates might? Um. Probably, but I don't know how important it is. Uh, you know, the president says he'll raise a, a billion dollars. <laughs> that money, money's big stuff. But there's a limit. I, I look at it on the more positive side. There's been some very wealthy individuals who self-financed, and they may win, but they might not get reelected, and sometimes they don't win. So money isn't isn't the uh, the only issue. So uh, I think that. Uh, you know, the funds are obviously very important, but uh, I, I don't think this is an invitation uh, to say that we have to uh, limit, limit this. I, I believe in, in freedom of, of people to spend their money. The problem isn't, you know, a lot of people say, it's the money, it's the money that's driving it. No, it's the power in the government, the power in the government to control our lives and the economy and pass out favors. Uh, and besides, if you have individuals that might resist the, the the temptation to accept it. They don't donate my money to me and the, and the lobbyists don't even come to see me. And that's quite a bit different. So I don't think, uh, money is pretty darn important, but uh, I, I don't think it's the, uh, the final answer. And uh, of course we have to prove ourselves. So we have a student from the University of Tampa who asked the question, why is it, and I'm, obviously we're assuming he's right by posing the question, or he is, uh, why is it that you receive more donations from military members than any other candidate? Is that true, first of all? Uh, that is absolutely true. And uh, I did mention it in the talk. I said that uh, I got, uh, I think I did, <laughs> uh, I got twice, we don't know about this quarter, but uh, up so far, I've gotten twice as much, more than twice as much money from active military duty than uh, all the other Republican candidates put together. So that should be a message. Also, more than Obama got, and he's the commander-in-chief. So, but it tells me one thing. The young people, the military people, they're sick and tired of the war. They want to come home. That's the message I'm governing. Every single day, those numbers are growing of, uh, of the fruitlessness of this war. And it is up to us, the people, to look at this as a moral issue and a constitutional issue. If we looked at this as a moral issue, a monetary issue, and a constitutional issue, we wouldn't have lost one soldier over there. And it's just endless. It's on and on and on. Uh, and it's because we break the rules. If we were more restrained, matter of fact, before we went into Iraq, I'm on international relations, I made them vote on a declaration of war. I said, I'm not going to vote for this, but if you want to go to war, you go to war and vote for it. Be up front. Oh, no, we don't want to do this. We want to just give the president the authority and make up his own mind. And that, of course, is the example of uh, the loss of the republic and delivering what the, one of the reasons we fought our revolution, why the founders explicitly said the president can't go to war this way. And look at where we've been. Look at where we've been. I was in the military for five years in the, during, during the 1960s. And uh, that war wasn't declared. Korea wasn't declared. We don't even care about national sovereignty. We go to war under the UN banner and NATO, and now the president doesn't even tell us. He goes and starts another war in Libya, and he doesn't even mention it to us. And we have to dig it out. 
And what is so, so discouraging is the lackadaisical attitude about the people. But that is what I'm hoping to change. And quite frankly, I think we are changing that. I think there are some polls that show now that a definite majority of the American people say enough is enough. It's time to come home. So you re- and along those lines, you recently suggested that the killing of the suspected terrorist in Yemen could be an impeachable offense. Um, and this is after, I believe, you seem to agree earlier with the suggestion that U.S. military involvement in Libya was also along those lines. If that's indeed the case, and you know, you're saying the American people should have the courage of their convictions that they may or may not have, why not then go ahead and draw up the articles of impeachment? Well, I'd have to do it for every president I've ever seen around here because they, <laughs> because they haven't followed the Constitution, and it's a practical matter. Uh, I mean, there's, there's not going to be an endorsement. Uh, uh, nothing's going to happen. And they were asking me whether that was an impeachable offense, and it is. I mean, just ignoring the Fifth Amendment and assassinating an American citizens without due process and won't even tell us what the rules are. Oh, but he's a threat. Can you imagine being put on a list because you're a threat? What's going to happen when they come to the media? What if the media becomes a threat or a professor becomes a threat? Someday that could well happen. This is the way it works. It's incrementalism. Oh, you know, fear-mongering. This never would happen in America. It's slipping and sliding, let me tell you. So uh, I, I would say that uh, we, we shouldn't do this uh, with totally ignoring this. We better pay attention to it. But I'm not sure you answered the question other than to say you would have had to do it for every president. If, if, if indeed you believe that's the case, why not, why not go ahead and press the press? I don't think it accomplishes anything because the sentiment is not there. So uh, I, I don't think that would uh, you know, be achievable. I think it's more important uh, that we educate the people to understand how offensive it is. And then if there is a consensus, uh, you know, then, then that will come along. And I'd probably have a coalition of people that would agree with that. A lot of people now are having second thoughts about, about that assassination. Uh, but uh, this was an announced policy in February of 2010 by Dennis Blair. And he used the word assassination. Sometimes on the media they'll say, oh, Ron Paul says it's going to, he was assassinated. Where did he come up with that word? From Dennis Blair, who said that uh, that is now our policy. And just think of the list we already have at the airport. You are a potential terrorist by uh, going through the airport because they can violate all your civil liberties. And uh, they, they can put you on these lists. How do you get your name off a list if you're a threat? Some, uh, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, are on these lists. And uh, like I tried to demonstrate in my talk, we are not safer for it. We're broke and we're in greater danger. And this whole idea, you know, Robert Pape is somebody I've read and studied along with Michael Schur. Schur was the CIA agent. Main, his main job was to uh, trail and deal with Osama bin Laden. Robert Pape he is the expert on suicide terrorism. And uh, he says the number one reason on every suicide terrorist attack that he has studied, the number one reason why somebody would do it is occupation. So we go into new, in various countries, we go in, uh, we, we invade a country, uh, people get killed, and uh, then they shoot back, and they're all terrorists. And therefore, we have to expand our war to go after those who are trying to kill us because we're occupying their land. I don't know why we can't think about a foreign policy 
of, of, good, of goodwill, you know, of treating people how you would want to be treated. The golden rule could apply. Just think of anything that we have ever done in any country of the world in the last 10 or 15 years, if any country would have ever done it to us. You know, what if, what if uh, in the next 10 years we get a lot poorer and China gets a lot richer? And they started drone attacks on us? Oh, yeah, there's an enemy. We've got to get him. He's an enemy of the people. We, we, we can't allow that to happen. And this is, this is where, what is going on today. There is a transition away from per, protecting personal liberties. And I, I want to protect these liberties. I don't want prior restraint on the media, certainly. But I don't want prior restraints on you as an individual. You know, why can't we apply this whole principle of, of prior restraint, this uh, censorship of the media? We respect that, but we ought to do that for all individuals rather than saying, oh, he's a threat, he's a terrorist, and, uh, but we don't have to tell you why we put him on the terrorist list. Well, if they have a reason, tell us. Have a trial. I mean, we tried Adolf Eichmann. I mean, the, the Israelis tried Eichmann, you know, and uh, just think of his monster. All the Nazi criminals were tried. They were taken to court and then executed. Uh, uh, the, the, there are you know, quite a few examples like that. That uh, McVeigh. McVeigh is another one. Oh, everybody knew he did it. But the reason we do this is because we want to protect the rule of law for ourselves. Not, not for the... It's sort of like you protect First Amendment rights to protect the right to say controversial things, not to talk about the weather, you know, and that's why, that's why you have to protect the courts, not because they're the bad people. We're not protecting it for them. We're protecting it so that it doesn't get out of hand, and it is a crucial matter. So when you talk about the cause of terrorism being the occupation of other lands, how did that fit into what happened on 9-11? <clears throat> uh, read, read Michael Shore and... Robert Pape, they give you the clear answer. Just break it down for us for 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Um, it is the fact that uh, the, the explained reason for hitting us on 9-11 were military bases in Saudi Arabia. There was one. Like I said, 9-11 uh, Commission conceded that. CIA conceded that. They all said that the constant bombing and the killing of many innocent people in Iraq for over 10 years which was challenged on TV, national TV, to Madeleine Albright, and she acknowledged, yes, probably 500,000 died, but that's the price you have to pay. And, uh, it, 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 and that, those are the reasons that they gave for doing it. And it is very real. Uh, another good example of this is, and what he points out so clearly, is when the occupation stops, the terrorist attacks stop. Lebanon is a perfect example. We went into Lebanon in the early 80s, and uh, we were seen as occupiers. We were attacked, and 241 of our Marines were killed by suicide terrorists. Eventually, we left, we left soon after that. The French left and the Israelis left. There was no more suicide terrorism. It, it just stopped like that. And uh, the interesting thing, is, this is worth looking into, when Reagan wrote his memoirs, uh, he said he said that he would never turn tail and run, but he did because he had not realized the irrationality of the politics in that region. And he said if he had been more neutral, follow the policy of neutrality, those Marines would still be alive. And that took a lot of courage for Reagan to write that and admit the shortcomings in his foreign policy at that time.
Here's our last question. Of course, your son is a U.S. senator, and since the Senate is considered the upper chamber, how is his world on the Hill different and perhaps even better than yours? <laughs> well, it reminds me of a little story, because the first day we were sworn in together, uh, we were on the same TV program, and they were sort of poking a little fun at me. How do you feel that your son now is in the Senate and you're in the House? And I said, well, I've already told him, I said that if he does a real good job as a senator, that he eventually might be able to get a seat in the House of Representatives. <laughs> so the damage has been done because we have not heeded the warnings of President Eisenhower about the military-industrial complex, and we have not heeded the warnings of John F. Kennedy regarding the rise of power of secret societies. Since Eisenhower and Kennedy gave those warnings, the one president who did the most damage, in my view, with respect to our long-term economic situation and the erosion of our liberties, was Richard Nixon. When we come back after the break, we will listen to Richard Nixon's August 15, 2071 speech, in which he enabled the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government to plant the seeds of our economic and moral destruction through the unlimited issuance of debt. I'm talking about the lies and half-truths presented to us by President Nixon when he removed the dollar from its international gold backing. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Richard Nixon's speech and some comments of my own in wrapping up today's show. Don't go away. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity american manganese incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest united states and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world a National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navats Jab Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try to 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, in my view, the worst president since World War II was not President Carter or even President Obama, as many many people think, especially Republicans think. In fact, the worst president since World War II was a Republican named Richard Nixon because he removed gold from the dollar. By so doing, he paved the way for the enormous problems we are facing today, which has to do with endless wars and endless debt. Of course, in announcing his program, his speech sounded oh so good. He said by temporarily detaching gold from the dollar, he would help to stabilize and strengthen the dollar and help the American worker. He also announced a 10% import tax against everything imported. Both of these policies were supposed to strengthen the dollar and help the working class. Of course, exactly the opposite resulted. Listen to Nixon's August 15, 1971 speech announcing the so-called temporary detachment of gold from the dollar. The third indispensable element in building the new prosperity is closely related to creating new jobs and halting inflation. We must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. In the past seven years, there's been an average of one international monetary crisis every year. Now, who gains from these crises? Not the working man, not the investor, not the real producers of wealth. The gainers are the international money speculators. Because they thrive on crises, they help to create them. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy. And the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. Now, what is this action, which is very technical, what does it mean for you? Let me lay to rest the bugaboo of what is called devaluation. If you want to buy a foreign car or take a trip abroad, market conditions may cause your dollar to buy slightly less. But if you are among the overwhelming majority of Americans, who buy American-made products in America, your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today. The effect of this action, in other words, will be to stabilize the dollar. Now, this action will not win us any friends among the international money traders. But our primary concern is with the American workers and with fair competition around the world. To our friends abroad, including the many responsible members of the international banking community who are dedicated to stability and the flow of trade, I give this assurance. The United States 
has always been and will continue to be a forward-looking and trustworthy trading partner. In full cooperation with the International Monetary Fund and those who trade with us, we will press for the necessary reforms to set up an urgently needed new international monetary system. Stability and equal treatment is in everybody's best interest. I am determined that the American dollar must never again be a hostage in the hands of international speculators. I'm taking one further step to protect the dollar, to improve our balance of payments, and to increase jobs for Americans. As a temporary measure, I am today imposing an additional tax of 10% on goods imported into the United States. This is a better solution for international trade than direct controls on the amount of imports. This import tax is a temporary action. It isn't directed against any other country. It's an action to make certain that American products will not be at a disadvantage because of unfair exchange rates. When the unfair treatment is ended, the import tax will end as well. As a result of these actions, the product of American labor will be more competitive, and the unfair edge that some of our foreign competition has will be removed. This is a major reason why our trade balance has eroded over the past 15 years. So there you have it. Nixon blamed speculators for the growing currency instability in the late 60s and into 1971. Sure enough, speculators did step in to sell the dollar and buy gold because they understood that Nixon and the Federal Reserve were printing money to pay for the Vietnam War and for Johnson's Great Society Socialism program. So the real blame, however, for the run on the dollar was President Nixon's dishonesty with the American people. He did not want to tell them that they would have to be taxed to pay for Vietnam and for socialism. So he issued debt, which was monetized by the Federal Reserve System, and people understanding what was going on sold the dollar as increased supplies of dollars were being created and bought gold, which is real money, money that has intrinsic value. French President Charles de Gaulle and other nations as well did not want to increasingly to hold increasingly worthless dollars, so they demanded gold, that is one ounce of gold, for every $35 they returned to the U.S. Treasury, and they were entitled to do that under Bretton Woods. So there was a run against the dollar, and gold was leaving the coffers of the U.S. in massive amounts. So Nixon unilaterally caused the U.S. to default on its obligation to pay the rest of the world gold for dollars. Contrary to his promise, the working class was hurt in the following years as we had one of the worst inflation rates since the Civil War. And since then, the working class in America has continued to be hurt by fiat money, which allows bankers and politicians to grab a bigger share of GDP for themselves at the expense of the people who are actually creating wealth, the working class. Ron Paul is the only presidential candidate that understands these basic underlying reasons for our economic malaise. All the other guys and gals out there trying to be president will only tinker around the edge and probably will do more harm than good because they're not really addressing the real problem. These are some of the reasons that I am personally so firmly behind Ron Paul for president. I think it may be the last great hope to salvage what the Founding Fathers gave us in 1776. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, I expect to interview a guest or two during my travels in Hong Kong 
Taipei and Singapore, and I may have a surprise guest or two for you as well. Be sure to watch for our announcements via, e via email the, uh, a few days before we go to our next show on Tuesdays. If you are not on our mailing list, you can be, you can get on our mailing list by sending a request to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. In closing, I want to thank the staff at Voice America for making this show uh, logistically possible. Tacey Trump, my producer, and Justin Jackman for my, uh, my engineer. And thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.